Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I'm with Jim Cullen, teacher at the newly founded Upper Division of Greenwich Country Day School, to discuss his new book published by Rutgers University Press 2022 called 1980, America's Pivotal Year. 1980, America's Pivotal Year, puts the news events of the era, everything from the Iran hostage crisis to the rise of televangelism to the contentious 1980 election, into conversation with the year's popular culture. Separate chapters focus on the movies, television shows, songs, and books that Americans were talking about and digesting, including both the biggest hits and some notable flops that failed to capture the shifting zeitgeist. As Cullen looks at the events that had Americans glued to their screens, from the miracle on ice to the mystery of who shot JR, cultural historian Jim Cullen garners surprising insights about how American attitudes were changing as they entered the 1980s. Jim, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Pleasure to be here. So before we get into the content of the books, tell me a little bit about your academic background and the scholarly impetus for writing 1980, America's Pivotal Year. Well, um, I, uh, I do have a, um, an academic background. I, I have a, a bachelor's degree in English from Tufts University. I have a PhD and a master's degree and a PhD in American studies from, from Brown. I have taught you know, at, at Harvard, at Sarah Lawrence College, but I've also been for a lot of this period a high school teacher. And I spent about 19 years at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School in New York, uh, and then I left there a couple of years ago to be part of a, effectively a startup or a sort of a semi-startup at the Greenwich Country Day School. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, that's my teaching background. I'm, I've written uh, about 20 books. Um, I'm, I consider myself a cultural historian. Um, and in recent years, I have really focused more on, um, you know, the, 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 latter ha- the latter third or so of the 20th century. And I've written books about... Uh, about, about the sitcom All in the Family. I've written about the filmmaker Martin Scorsese. And this book sort of fits into that, um, that sort of pattern of recent years. Fantastic. So why focus on the year 1980? What was supposedly pivotal, as, as mentioned in the title, or, what, or how did the zeitgeist shift in this year and distinctive, the distinctual from the leading up of the 1970s. How was 1980 uh, a year to focus on? How is it not merely just a continuation of the 70s? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the great uh, cliches of historical uh, study is to call any particular time, you know, a, a moment of change, because you know, every moment is a moment of change, almost by definition. Um, but what interests me about 1980 basically were two things. One is that, you know, it, it is well, it, it has been amply do- documented and is well remembered by those of us who lived through it that, you know, 1980 was clearly a time of, uh, of ideological shifts in, in American politics. And the, you know, the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 is widely considered a kind of watershed um, in American history. Um, but I think that less well um, understood or examined is the way in which um, that year, which was so important politically, was also important culturally, that that uh, that there really were that that, you know, the politics and the culture were really um, in, a, in a kind of loose alignment that way. Um, and the other thing that I, the, the, which brings me to the second thing, I, I think that 1980 was a little bit unusual 
in the way in which it seemed to, it almost was like a piece of stop motion photography because there were, if you look at, you know, particular movies or TV shows or albums or books that come out that year, you can see how both they really reflect a culture of the 1970s, along with, at the same time, an emergent sort of shift toward a kind of uh, neoconservatism that you, that you see in the 1980s. And I'm sure we'll talk about particular examples, which I'm happy to do. But, you know, it's that it's that that sort of um, protean quality, the way that you can capture the doubleness in that moment. That's what that what intrigued me. So you bookend your lively history with a history of the 1980 presidential election. Give us a sense of the political context of this election. So, you know, 1980 was a, um, you know, it was, you know, I think political scientists would say was a, was a, a time of a, of a political realignment. And, you know, before 1980, you know, the, the, the kind of premises of, of, um, of, a liberalism that had basically been in place since the time of the Great Depression, since the time of the New Deal, had largely been regnant. And after that time, you have essentially a kind of neoliberal order, a kind of a you know market-based kind of approach. Um, in the in, in the year 1980, you have you have you have a, an election going on, and it, it, it's sort of um it's kind of a funny election because because I think for a lot of people living at the time, both candidates, both major candidates seem so unlikely and so unappetizing. <laughs> you know, you have um, President Jimmy Carter, who um, had been elected in 1976, and he was a fresh face and a fresh voice at the time. He represented a break from the kind of uh, imperial presidency that had characterized um, the, the administrations of Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, and he was very appealing that way. But Carter's presidency was very troubled to some degree for reasons beyond his control. The economy was was really quite poor. It was a time actually a time like we're living in now, very high inflation, but it was also coupled with high unemployment at the same time. Uh, Carter's um, Carter was applauded for his honesty and decency, but he but a lot of people felt like his leadership was lacking. And so, you know, it, it, it did not seem very likely that he would be reelected. You know, Ronald Reagan, uh, to, to many people, was a, it was an appealing candidate, but for a great many Americans, he seemed preposterous. For one thing, he was he was 69 years old, which was far too old to be elected to the presidency in a lot of people's minds. He also seemed dangerously radical and out of touch. Um, and so he also seemed, um, you know, like an unlikely prospect. Now there are a couple of other figures that are that that, that are worth mentioning in this context. You know, there's a third there's a third candidate, John Anderson, who um, starts out as a Republican. He's sort of a liberal Republican, and he emerges as a third party candidate. And he, you know, diminishes in terms of his, um, you know, the, the the slice of the electorate that he gets. But he is sort of a road not taken, and again shows us you know, how much things were changing because the notion of a kind of liberal Republican or, or, or a liberalish or, a, you know, a kind of secular, well, he was actually a minister, but nevertheless, he he, he appealed to um, younger, younger voters at the time. I mean, that's the kind of thing you could never see now. And yet it was sort of, it was sort of a, a, a available option. And, the, and then the, the fourth person who's mentioning, worth mentioning in this context is, is Senator Edward Kennedy, who challenged uh, Jimmy Carter for the presidency, and who many people believe to be the front runner, um, you know, Kennedy sort of bungled the um, his rollout of his campaign. I mean, he didn't. He, he was sort of indecisive and uh, got off to a slow start. Although he then ended up posing a 
substantial uh, challenge to Carter. But to me, the most interesting thing about Ted Kennedy's presidency in 1980 was that you know, he was the liberal lion. He was the bastion of the of traditional of the traditional left. And he was seen as a very, very plausible candidate in 1979 going into 1980. And after that point, he would no longer be. I mean, that 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 tide completely washes out in 1980. So, again, you know, this is a, the political manifestation of what I'm saying is that in 1980, you know, it was still very much the 1970s. You know, I mean, it was very much the the Democratic Party of the Kennedys, you know, uh, uh, going back to Joe Kennedy, you know, um, you know, at the same time, it was very clear that there was that there was um, there were shifting winds afoot and that over time, Reagan's presidency, which had seemed, um, you know, an unlikely prospect, ended up becoming an inevitable one. You mentioned, yeah, the distaste of both candidates and the enthusiasm for young people. John Anderson, both of my parents cast their first vote. For John B. Anderson, they were the typical kind of uh, college student, New Republic reading, uh, youthful intellectual types who just and both from well the Midwest, and so they really appreciated his his message. So I'm I'm grateful you included uh, a, a little history into Anderson. So your analysis includes chapters on four mediums of popular culture: film, television, music, and literature. What do these mediums reveal about the changing nature of American society? Why pick, in a sense, these four uh, popular mediums? Well, because I think they're they are they are the sort of the uh, the um, the center, as it were, of uh, of American culture at the time. And you know, I, I think it is worth pausing for a moment to to, to um, emphasize that 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 um, the, the media culture of the of, of nineteen eighty is much. Um, more centralized and cohesive than the kind that we have that we have today. Um, I mean, just to sort of illustrate the point, using television. I mean, this was an age of broadcasting. You know, this was an age when you know there were there were three major networks. Um, you know, there was PBS as an alternative, but you know, you know, the number one show, you know, a show like say Mash, which was running strong in 1980, would get would get tens of millions of viewers a week. You know, in in you know, in our time, Game of Thrones getting 10 million viewers for its finale is considered a major cultural earthquake. Like, wow, you know, 10, 10 million viewers would get you canceled in 1980, you know, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of the show. Um, you know, we have a we have a and this is not a you know praise or criticism. It's just an observation of the of the of the media landscape sort of being different. So, you know, that's that's something that sort of intrigues me. But again, to go to the the main point here, you know, when you look at these different media, in every case, you can see these examples that have that um, protean sort of shape-shifting quality to them of, of two things going on at the same time. Uh, let me let me get um, let me get specific here. You know, I, I opened the chapter on since uh, on popular music. You know, noting that 1980 was the year that um, you know John Lennon. You know, this was of course the year that he died, but he releases a, a new album for the first time. In, in five years, starting over, and he had, and there's a bunch of hit singles from that. And of course, his death is very tragic, and you know, a landmark in its own right. But but to focus on the living Lenin for for a minute and what he actually was doing and saying, you know, starting over on the one hand is a is a feminist statement by a house husband who you know is married to a woman who is the the breadwinner. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's the liber- it's, he's a liberated male. You know, um, and 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 as such, he fits squarely in a kind of a seventies you know gender paradigm you know but that album double fantasy is 
decidedly retro and it's, uh, you know, avowedly so. I mean, the hits, the first hit single is starting over. It's sort of a tribute to Elvis Presley, you know. I mean, so he is, you know, simultaneously his, his message is sort of a 70s message in terms of its, you know, gender politics. But at the same time, the musical message is is neoconservative in the sense that, not, not in a Reagan-esque sense, but in the sense of uh, embracing older forms, recycling them, you know. Uh, you know, so those, those, those sort of two things are going on sort of simultaneously. Yeah, you, you mentioned, just to stick on John Lennon for a little bit, you mentioned indirectly, quickly, about his disavowal of his early 1970s leftism, right? He said he really doesn't, he was doing it out of guilt. He really didn't know what he was doing. From what I understand, I mean, he said elliptically that he kind of was supportive of Reagan in 1980. I mean, do do you have any information on kind of Lenin's politics right before he died? Yeah. Well, I I don't have any, I don't have any evidence that that, that he said anything positive about, about Reagan. And I, and I, and I think it would, I think it would be a, you know, a kind of dereliction of duty on my part to suggest that, you know, that John Lennon was really a Reagan at heart. I don't, I don't believe that he was, but, but to speak to your point, I mean, at the beginning of the 1970s, you know, John Lennon was, was, was a rather, radical leftist voice and was actively entertaining literally and figuratively, you know, some of the most um, uh, subversive and, and challenging sort of figures in the culture at the time. And at the end of the 1970s, he is giving interviews and he's saying, you know, basically I did that of guilt and peer pressure. You know, I, this was not really a, an honest reflection of who I was. I mean, again, that's not the same thing as saying that you're a, you know, a neoconservative economist. But I, I do, I, I think Lennon, one of the things about John Lennon, of course, why so many people admired him is that, you know, he was one of those people like Bob Dylan, um, who would soon become a born again Christian, by the way, <laughs> um, which people may not remember, um, but, but that he, who, who really had his finger on the pulse of the culture. And and so you know it was interesting that even at the very end of his life, Lenin seems to have a seemed to have a sixth sense about you know the direction of uh, of Western culture generally. Yeah, and and you also mentioned Springsteen too, who you've written a book on. Also, even though he doesn't capture the politics of the era, still nonetheless, his 1980 album captures this. Yeah, this nostalgic resourcement of the 1950s. Right. Absolutely. Again, you know, Bruce Springsteen, you know, uh, was, um, you know, a, a lifelong, still is a, a dedicated Democrat, you know, hostile to, you know, um, the, the, the excesses of, of, the, of the new right. Um, but musically speaking, he is a deeply conservative figure who in many ways was about preserving the world of his parent, his post-war parents in his, in his musical vision. And certainly in terms of his sonic vocabulary, he harkens back. You know, he, he is not a he is not an avant garde, you know, sort of figure in this period. And it is and again, it is interesting to point out in this context that the avant garde figures were also beginning to move in this direction. I mean, in 1980, you have um, you have someone like, um, you know, the talking heads, you know, release Remain in Light, which is very much, you know, the absolute sonic frontier of American popular music. They record the album with Brian Eno. They, they experiment with African rhythms, exactly what you would expect, you know, an experimental you know, band at the vanguard of American musical culture to do. And yet within a couple of years, the Talking Heads would release little creatures. They'd have twangy, twangy, you know, country guitars. They would be embracing Americana. And you can sort of see this in David Bowie's music. You can see this in Laurie Anderson's music. I mean, some of this, you know, obviously spills out beyond the narrow confines of 1980. But the the trend, I think, is unmistakable. Speaking of also trends, uh, 
you in your chapter on film, you frequently discuss a book, also kind of bookending the chapter. Uh, excuse me, free, you frequently mentioned the film Heaven's Gate, directed by Michael Cimino, uh, which is a significant critical and commercial flop in 1980. What does Heaven's Gate, the, the disaster of its production and release, reveal about film and the changing landscapes of Hollywood in 1980? Well, um, you know, the, the story of Heaven's Gate as as a flop, you know, that, um, uh, you know, that, bring, that, that brings the studio, United Artists, to its knees is a, is a very, is a sort of a very familiar one. In fact, there's a brand new book, actually, that probably will break some ground in terms of telling that story. Um, and it is a great story. I mean, how this, this up and coming filmmaker uh, who wins an who wins an Academy Award for the Deer Hunter is given carte blanche to make a to make a movie. Uh, he is he is reckless. He is a reckless spendthrift, and um, and 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 the movie that he makes ends up becoming a financial disaster. That that's an intrinsically interesting story. But in terms of in terms of the story that I'm telling here, again, it, it speaks to this transitional moment because you know. Heaven's Gate, in a lot of ways, is a, is meant to be a kind of um, revisionist Western. I mean, it it tells the story of Eastern European immigrants on the frontier. We don't th- we don't typically think of Eastern European immigrants on the frontier. It's that's sort of part of a '70s story in terms of you know widening the the lens and bringing um, the ethnic working class into the mainstream, and you know, and that's sort of part of the project. Of, uh, of 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 Heaven's Gate, and you know it's and it you know it's I think there's a lot to be said for that, but it's also true that that Heaven's Gate is a um you know a sort of a, you know a, a Western in the grand tradition. I mean that's what that's what um what Samina was trying to do was to was to was to was to write an epic you know or to you know to to hearken you know the great westerns of the 40s and 50s you know the the John Ford Monument Valley sort of types of stories and you know and one of the reasons why um uh, the movie was such a financial disaster is you know the sets and the and the complications of uh, you know bringing the railroad to the middle of Idaho you know that kind of thing so it's it's one more illustration of the larger you know argument i'm trying to make here what were some other uh, major films in the 1980s that either capture or do not capture this the shifting zeitgeist. Well, another a movie that I think is interesting in this regard is uh, um, uh, Goldie Hawn's big hit uh, from 1980, uh, Private Benjamin. You know, um, uh, and you know, Private Benjamin is very much a 70s movie again in the terms of, in terms of a gender context, and that we have you know a kind of. Uh, uh, you know, a kind of lively woman with some with, with some grit, um, who o- overcomes you know sexism and her own insecurities and ends up becoming sort of a, a sort of a successful soldier. That's like a feminist story. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's worth pointing out that Private Benjamin is a comedy about the military, and. That was a contradiction in terms for most of the 1970s. If you made movies about the military in the 1970s, you were making, you know, you were making Apocalypse Now, you know, you were making The Deer Hunter. I mean, you know, the military was no joke. It was uh, it was the ultimate symbol of American imperialism. So the idea that, you know, that 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 you could make a lighthearted movie about this and you could make a lighthearted movie in which the military is an instrument of gender emancipation 
is something a little bit new and a sign that the culture was changing. And so once again, you have a you have a, a document here that is both very much a 70 story and very much a sign of things to come. Being to be followed, of course, by like stripes and you know other sort of comedies. You know, Good Morning Vietnam, of course, toward the end of the decade. I think you could even connect it to Top Gun, especially with the new Top Gun. Oh, sure, this sure. A, a film showing the benefits, the personal, like rewarding and fulfilling benefits of the military. I thought that was a an excellent argument. Although there are some films from 1980, I. I, I I wish you had discussed, uh, speaking of gender issues, Brian De Palma's politically incorrect masterpiece, Dress to Kill, mm. uh, with Michael Caine and then, and then some others. But nonetheless, I think the, the yeah. discussion was, is, yeah, go. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. Um, you know, and, and I think you're right to sort of bring that up. And again, you know, in the context of its time, you know, I mean, I think that, that a lot of people today would regard that movie as problematic and dated. Um, but in the context of its time, you know, you know, giving that much um, airspace, as it were, to a to a powerful woman, you know, is a is 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 itself a kind of a kind of a statement. Exactly. Uh, so, moving on to television, which it seems the 1980s was one of the most popular of these four mediums, especially the show Dallas and its popular, like decade-defining episode, "Who Shot Jr." Tell us a little bit about. What Dallas was, because I think a lot of listeners probably either were a little too young to understand like the the importance and gravity gravity of of this show. So tell us a little bit about Dallas and how this episode, but also the show's kind of implicit ideology, signified a cultural change concerning things of power and business and greed. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that, that I need to I need to point out or admit or concede or whatever acknowledge is that, you know, Dallas was not was had was not a new show in 19 in 1980. It had already been on the air for a few years. Uh, and as such, it was sort of a little bit of ahead of its time in terms of what we're talking about here, because what we're talking about here is a a group of sort of filthy rich capitalists who we who uh, we're so, we, we love to hate, you know, or hate to love, you know, whatever the case may be. And that sort of that sort of storyline was, you know, was was sort of, you know, gathering momentum by 1980. It's really actually interesting when you look at the first few episodes, you know, that that the female characters really, you know, had much more um uh, presence or were, 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 a fo- were more of a focus of the of the episodes. But, you know, J.R., you know, played by Larry Hagman, ends up sort of coming to steal the show. And, and by 1980, you know, the show has become the top show on television and Hagman himself has become a, you know, a major sort of television icon. And he ultimately is the, the prototype for the sort of the swashbuckling, you know, amoral capitalist who um, we we we, uh, you know, again, we, we, when I say we, many Americans, you know, uh, implicitly or explicitly deplored, but nevertheless couldn't take our eyes off of, you know, and, uh, um, and, you know, he was, uh, you know, again, you know, a forerunner of say someone like Gordon Gecko, you know, Wall Street sort of toward, toward, toward the end of the, the, the decade. Um, and, and, you know, this whole notion that, you know, there's a, there's a cliffhanger episode at the end of, I guess it's season three of, of, uh, Dallas, which takes place in the spring of 1980 and, and Jr. gets shot and they purposely leave it unclear who shot him. And that's, and then, and that's, and that remains, um, unclear until well into season four. So basically for about eight months in 1980, we're sort of in a state of suspense about, you know, who, who shot this character. And, you know, this is, um, you know, you know, again, 
you know, comparatively speaking, I, I can't think of a television. I mean, we have, we certainly have, you know, I mean, we have, you know, someone like a, a Ted Lasso, you know, character who, you know, has a meme like status, but it, it's simply dwarfed by, you know, um, by the, the, the intrigue surrounding a character like Jr. you know, I mean, the queen of England, you know, wants to know, you know, and uh, not even for you, ma'am, you know, Larry Hagman tells her when he meets her at Buckingham Palace, God rest her soul. <laughs> yes. We're connecting, we're connecting 1980 to the contemporary. So, so seamlessly. Uh, I know this episode primarily not from Dallas, but from the amazing Simpsons parody, Who Shot Mr. Burns, which, uh, which to a young kid was just as suspenseful and just as intriguing as the show. Um, you mentioned in the in the book that TV shows usually didn't start in 1980. Usually a show, especially the big shows of 1980, as with Dallas, it started a few years prior. What were some of the big ratings hits of 1980? Well, you know, that it's interesting because again, you know, yeah, I mean, to, to that point, I mean, you know, there are some media that sort of just move a lot faster. You know, you, you record an album in a few weeks and it, and it, and it, and it goes through its sort of commercial life over a period of months, you know, uh, the, the same could be, the same could really be said of movies and, um, and even, and even publishing, although publishing is a little bit slower, but you know, the, the, um, Television is more like an aircraft carrier. It's it's sort of slower to get to roll up and slower to because it takes takes many months, you know, to, to make to, to make a season's worth of shows and then it goes into reruns and so on. So all this is sort of a, a preface of saying. And again, I think you know, nineteen eighty is interesting in this regard because it is still the nineteen seventies. You know, um, all in the family is finishing up its run, but Archie Bunker is getting his own show. You know, so that character is continuing. And a lot of the Norman Lear, Norman Lear is still going strong. You know, in terms of the Jefferson you know, in terms of one day at a time. I mean, this sort of, this sort of, um, you know, working class oriented sort of subversive leftist humor, you know, is still, um, you know, a, a very alive and well sort of in television. But, um, but there, there are signs of change in the air. As we, as we talked, we talked about Dallas, we, you know, we have a show like um, uh, Three's Company, you know, which was, a, you know, a, you know, a kind of jiggle show, as they were called. Um, and, and what's, what's relevant here is that shows like that, and there were a number of them, you know, um, are more avowedly escapist. They are implicitly or explicitly rejecting, you know, the sort of socio-political overtones that that marked what we considered quality television in the golden age of the sitcom and shows like MASH and the Mary Tyler Moore show and again all in the family i mean part of part of what made those shows so beloved to audiences was was the idea that they were funny but they were also topical and they had some kind of sort of artistic value and some of these newer shows are you know again you know um if not rejecting such a premise, you know, not not necessarily embracing it wholeheartedly, or or you know, sidestepping, or even you know, or avoiding you know the the kind of the kind of political topicality that had characterized so much of seventies culture. So political topicality plays a big role in the debate between John Kenneth Galbraith and Milton Friedman, who have in nineteen eighty dueling. Well, not in the 70s, dueling documentaries. Uh, and then in 1980, Milton Friedman comes out with a book uh, that was also co-written by his wife. Uh, tell us a little bit about Milton Friedman's journey to making this documentary and writing this book and you know what it, what it says about publishing and writing and, and politics generally in, in 1980. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
you know, again, this is one of those things where, you know, someone like Milton Friedman is a very well-known figure. And, and you know, it is for anybody who either lived through the period or was a student of the period is sort of aware of his vast influence on economics and economic policy and so on and so forth. And we, we and again, we can certainly talk about that. But, you know, the, 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 the aspect of this story that interests me is the way in which, um, you know, Friedman becomes a pop a culture phenomenon, and it's really worth pointing out, and again, in terms of large argument, sort of how this happens. It happens on public television, <laughs> you know, um, and, and you know, uh, PBS, you know, and it was part of a larger, you know, a larger Anglo-American consortium, and there were a, n- a number of successful sort of, you know, documentary sort of style shows that had that had been, you know, successful, and you know, John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, you know, had been tapped to do an economic show. And Galbraith, again, represented the kind of, the, I mean, the, you know, the Harvard-educated, you know, Brahmin, you know, uh, inflected voice, you know, the, the voice of common sense, you know, of, uh, of sort of mid-century American liberalism. And his show is... Um, uh, is widely regarded as a flop because even though he is a um, you know a gifted writer uh, who has a real feel for you know a, a popular audience, his persona is is a little bit considered a little bit stuffy or maybe a little bit um, self-involved and so on. And um, you, you know Milton Friedman, by contrast, is sort of this elfin character whose sunny optimism again is sort of a, a forerunner of what Reagan would do. You know, uh, he you know Friedman is sort of irrepressibly cheerful and jocular and uh, and is very happy to engage his skeptics. And and you know this unfolds on public television, which. You know, not 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 the networks. You know, not you know, not a sort of. I mean, I, and there are there are wrinkles in this. I mean, Friedman's success on NPR is funded by private, um, corp, you know, um, you know, sort of um, not enterprise, well, enterprises, but sort of think tanks or you know, organizations that put up the money for this. So you can you can see the sort of creeping. You know, neoliberalism, you know, on the one hand, infecting, if you want to use that term, you know, public television. But on the other hand, you see that, that Friedman could not be who he was unless he got that that springboard from, you know, what we think of. And we still even then we thought of, I mean, you know, PBS is part of what gave us the, the Watergate hearings. You know, it was the sort of uh, it was not it was never explicitly a, a leftist, um, you know, organ or me- medium. But it but by virtue of being a, a public service, it was presumably not beholden to private interests, and therefore reflected a a larger liberal, um, you know, perspective on the world. And yet here, here, here is you know Milton Friedman, you know, uh, driving a truck through that you know that door and establishing a new paradigm for common sense that we've come to know as neoliberalism or sort of free market, um, you know, uh, an emphasis on free market economics. Yeah, I think it's easy to determine who won that debate based on just stay within the publishing uh, discourse, uh, who who you can still find at a bookstore. I mean, when I was uh, young and finding books in politics and economics, I couldn't find a John Kenneth Galbraith book at a new bookstore, but almost all of Milton Friedman's popular works, like Free to Choose, as we're talking about, or his earlier work, Capitalism Freedom, you could find 
you know, any Barnes and Nobles or Borders. Yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah. And just, and just, just to finish your anecdote, I mean, I needed to get myself a copy of that to write this chapter. And so I ordered it and, you know, it was like, in it's 40 something printing. I mean, it's become a, it's become an evergreen. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of books, buying books, Borders, Barnes and Nobles, book selling was a bit different. You go into that in your chapter. I find this a really fascinating piece of like social history. How would an average middle American individual buy a book in 1980? Well, the short answer is at the mall. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. This was the, this was the golden age of the. Uh, of course, some would regard this as a contradiction in terms, but this was the golden age of the of the chain bookstore, um, and it is a little bit of a um, you know a kind of uh, uh, parable of sorts, you know, because. Um, you know, once upon a time, you know, book selling, you know, ha, you know, was was sort of a relatively small, decentralized business. I mean, we 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 we, we today speak of independent bookstores. You know, until about the early nineteen seventies, all bookstores were independent bookstores, with with a couple of couple of exceptions. But um, you know, you, you have by the nineteen seventies, you have a, a few a, 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 some gigantic corporate, you know. Um, Colossi, you know, like like Walden Books or or B Dalton um, um, or Borders, who um, begin sort of appearing, you know, in, in in shopping malls, which are also sort of at their height, and they are an interesting feature of the of the sort of commercial landscape. Indeed, you know, uh, mall owners or mall managers like having bookstores as part of the as part of the sort of the commercial mix and so um, you can usually find one at any given in any given mall um, and you know they quickly become a phenomenon and quickly quickly become an 800 pound gorilla in terms of their ability to uh, determine you know what 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 is going to be a hit and they and in the book I describe some of the techniques they use to sort of accomplish this I just you know there is a kind of wry quality to this as far as I'm concerned because um, you know, in the in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, you know, many many literary people regarded chain bookstores as sort of Darth Vader, the incarnation of evil in the in the publishing business, uh, and of course, you know, they now are the embattled um, you know underdogs in the face of online bookselling, you know, from people like um, from like Amazon, and, and 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 indeed, many of these many of these chains no longer exist. Yeah, my. Parents, when they would buy books, speaking of the independent bookstores, I don't think they knew bookstores. They would always say they got them at drugstores, right? Drugstores would have the racks of spinning books and you'd buy, you know, pulp paperbacks for like 25. This was like the uh, 60s, 70s, that era, as you mentioned in the book, the era of like paperbacks, of paperback technology, of, of reprints. Um, so continuing as a penultimate question, you finish your book with a discussion on Reagan's victory on his 1980 landslide. He wins by about nine points in the popular vote, takes over 400 electoral votes, and you focus squarely on the inauguration. How did this inauguration signify, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, a political realignment in the United States? You mentioned the, the kind of pageantry of it all uh, was symbolic of, of deep zeitgeist-like change. Yeah, well, I, I, that, that's right. And I think to understand just how striking that inauguration was, you have to go back to 1976 in terms of Jimmy Carter being elected. And, and, and earlier in this conversation, we talked about, you know, Carter was considered a breath of fresh air and was meant to be a kind of implicit or explicit rejection of the imperial presidency. And in this, and it's notable in this context that, you know, that Carter walks to his inauguration, you know, a very pointed sort of rejection of the sort of the, the pomp, you know, that had characterized sort of the presidency. I think he was, 
very self-consciously sort of invoking Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, even though he was every inch the gentleman, you know, Jefferson tried to sort of position himself as sort of a man of the people. And, you know, Carter, you know, wore the cardigan sweaters in the White House and turned the thermostat down and sort of was meant to be a kind of, um, uh, you know, embodiment of sort of, uh, you know, sensibility, you know. And so when Reagan comes in in 1980 and has this, you know, has this sort of spectacular inauguration filled with private jets and limousines and expensive gowns, and, you know, it's a, it's very much a sort of a goodbye to all that. And I, and I do think that, you know, you know, with the inauguration in January of, of, of 19, 1981, I think there was a very widespread recognition in the culture at large, like, wow, things really are changing. We have we have entered a new moment. I do think that probably um, 20, the election of 2016 and Donald Trump's inauguration, however you may feel about it in 2017, like him or hate him, I think many of us recognize that like, Oh, you know, um, we are we are we are going we are we are going into uncharted waters here, and that and that's how I think people felt in 1981 as well. Well, fantastic, great. Well, Jim, thank you so much for talking about your book. We I have run through my questions; you've answered them uh, magnificently. Thank you. Before we go, though, I just want to ask: What current projects are you working on, and are you going to work in or publish anything in the field similar to 1980? Uh, pop culture periodization, I would say. Well, as a matter of fact, yes, I'm still telling this particular field. I am currently finishing the uh, dr- uh, draft or getting ready to finish a a book that compares the musical careers of Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen. Uh, you know, two again who were right, right, who both of whom figure in this story in this book. But I'm I'm interested in the very striking parallels in terms of the way their careers unfolded, as well as the sort of differences. And of course, the, the working title for this is Bridge and Tunnel Boys. I mean, I'm interested in them as sort of suburbanites. You know, one east of New York, the other west or south of New York, um, and and their, their their position, literally and figuratively, as sort of marginal figures in the great metropolis. Um, and their and and that their 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 musical success being premised on a kind of uh, late 20th century kind of suburban, you know, sort of framework and, and, a new, and a specifically New York metropolitan New York framework, which, which makes me, you know, make a journey back to people like Irving Berlin and Frank Sinatra, but, but all, but really sort of centers on, you know, the 1970s and eighties. Yeah. I can already see so, so many similarities. Not only are they both kind of liberal democratic individuals, uh, but they're even though Bruce Springsteen does release albums uh, at, a, at a regular basis, especially recently, uh, they both seem to be very oriented towards the concert. I know that Billy Joel does his like residency at Madison Square Garden, and I know there's this big hullabaloo about Bruce Springsteen's um, concert tickets recently, how expensive they were. So I think uh, Jim, that's a, a fascinating comparison. I'm looking forward to that work. Um, Again, thank you so much, Jim, for for coming on the podcast and speaking about your new book, 1980. Thank you, Jackson. Great. Well, you've been listening to New Books in American Studies, uh, a channel of the New Books Network, talking about Jim Cullen's new book, 1980, America's Pivotal Year, published by Rutgers University Press 2022. I've been your host, Jackson Reinhardt. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day.